This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. Alan, how you doing? Back for another episode of Uptime. Yeah, busy week, Dan. A lot of, lot of crazy things going on in the world, and uh, you know we're just one small part of it. How are things down in D.C.? It sounds like you've had some excitement down your way. Yeah, um, went to the protests briefly last weekend. It seems like it's calming down a lot here, which is which is good. But it seems like a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of valid reasons people are pushing for change. So it's good that people have peacefully got to get their word out and had their voices heard. And it seems like a lot of things are going to change for the better, which is really positive. So so yeah, good. Uh, are are you getting more into summertime down there now? It's it's it's. June. It's full blown summer. Yeah. yeah. It's like 80, 80 to 90 degrees every day. Oh my gosh. At least this past week. So, wow. yeah, it's it's taken a, a quick turn. It, there, there really was no spring. I mean, I guess there was, but it was like 60s and 70s. And then now it's like quickly 90 and humid. So, pretty quick turn. Wow. And people are starting to go outside a little bit more, even with the coronavirus uh, still kicking around. Are they, are they masking up still, or is it kind of just get outside and wander around? Uh, so at the protests, almost everyone was in a mask. I mean, the overwhelming majority were, were wearing masks because people were, they knew they were going to be in close quarters. Mm. But outside of that, most people, I, I'd say it's 60, 40 don't wear a mask when they're outside. Mm. I don't wear a mask when, it's out, when I'm outside. I think that's, I think it's a little silly. Um, it just depends on proximity. Yeah. But there's some people that still jog in their mask. There's Ooh. some people that still, still sees couples walking with both masks on. Mm. Um, so it's just, you know, seems to be a personal preference, but there's definitely a lower prevalence of masks for sure. And stores starting to open because we're starting to open stores up here, which is really the big thing for everybody. Uh, so we're on phase one. I think phase two is probably coming up soon. Phase one was just uh, restaurants reopened for patio seating. Mm-hmm. So like I could go to, I, I'm yet to go to a restaurant. I've eaten at like Chipotle. I've eaten taken out, take sure. out here and yeah. there, but I have not sat down at a outdoor restaurant, but they're like getting pretty busy now which is good and people are excited about it um people aren't wearing masks at their tables because you're eating right you're with your people what are you gonna I, do? I think that's fine right. cases in dc still seem to be going down it doesn't seem like there's been any adverse effect yeah. at least as far as i've seen uh from the protests which is good because no one wanted like everyone to get sick from going out and you know trying to again protest for for change in this country that's a good thing so hopefully we're not all you know penalized for it and, and people get sick so hopefully that can just continue to trend in the right direction yeah but yeah um, wow but yeah the big the big thing the big news though is cicadas you brought this up uh off air and you've never seen the cicadas uh come out in full force have no, you? no we well we, we live in massachusetts and i'd say they don't exist up here but it's pretty cold and i think part of the cicadas are kind of a warmer weather critter right uh it seems like yeah it. yeah but I read that article that you mentioned. I read, it, I guess, probably two week, two weekends ago, that they're coming back because uh, for those of you listening, 
cicadas in, I guess it's more like the mid-Atlantic are, there's a lot of varieties, but there's one variety that's very cyclical and they basically stay dormant in like a nymph stage for either 13 or 17 years, sort of plus or minus. <laughs> and they said that this year they're due to come back. And the last time this happened, I was a senior in high school, <laughs> which I'm 34. So that would have been, you know, 16, yeah. se 16 17 years yeah. ago. And it's insane. You're walking down the sidewalk, crunching on cicadas like they're like they're leaves. Like you have, it's literally, if if you had a huge tree in your house in the fall or in your front yard in the fall, and your and your entire driveway and your in your sidewalk is covered in leaves, that's how it sounds as you're walking, crunching through these bugs that are big. I mean, they're the size of a silver dollar. These are not small. Wow. It's, it's one of the most insane things I'd ever seen at that point. In my how, life. And how just the ground coated in, in cicadas. Is, is the ground like crawling like an episode of the Mummy? You never seen the movies, the Mummy? Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're not as dynamic creatures like okay. those. Yeah, those uh, like scarabs <laughs> right? or whatever yeah. you call them. <laughs> they're not really crawling around that much. They're pretty, you know, just like kind of there, and then they'll fly away, take off or whatever. But like dogs are eating them, you're just stepping what? on them. You're trying not. It's disgu It's oh. disgusting stepping on that many of these large bugs. Mm. It's crazy. So when this comes back, <laughs> I'm gonna take some. I'm gonna take so much video. It's. I mean, it's gonna be a social media phenomenon. Because 17 years ago, there was an Instagram. No, Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if Twitter existed. Did no. it? No. No. But it's gonna be everywhere. I mean, it. There. Just be prepared for so much <laughs> cicada madness on social media. It is. It's a fascinating. Bizarre and disgusting phenomenon, it's, and it lasted for like two weeks because they just hang out and then they die, and they're still there because they don't just magically go away. They, they're big. They're shoveling them up like, yeah. like snowflakes in December, right? It's, big plows. It's, and it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I, I'm really excited now that you mentioned that for that to come back. It's such a weird natural phenomenon. It's so weird. Having grown up, but well, anyway. well, having grown up in the Midwest, the the insect that makes everybody nuts is grasshoppers and there are times when grasshoppers can get really thick like it um you know the the one you hear about all the time it's like during the dust bowl they had just huge amounts of grasshoppers coming through and just devouring crops right just yeah. just hit a yeah. cornfield and just clean it up boom uh, so when there's a lot of grasshoppers around those are big right and they're they 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 also like to fly and they also can hop pretty f mm -hmm. fast so like you're trying not to step on them they're everywhere it's just like this ooey gooey mess all the time <laughs> it just especially driving and run into those things at nighttime yeah Ugh, cars a mess sounds very sounds very similar so you'll be prepared for this a little bit then <laughs> Are, are grass are grasshoppers and locusts the same thing they're no, not no right? no no but i feel like they no They've been talked about in that same way. No, they may have, may have been, but I mean, grasshoppers are, are green, long, got the, you know, it's like Jiminy Cricket yeah, on they're, Pinocchio. They're awesome. Yeah, they're <laughs> awesome. I, 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 there are just times in my life where I hear about these plagues of locusts and they seem, I'm like, is that just like an interchangeable term or just like a cousin of the grasshopper mm. where they're kind of similar creature, but. Could be. I don't exactly know what a locust looks like. Well, I don't know. Have, I've had low locust exposure in my life, I guess. But yeah. grasshoppers are cool. It's it's weird that they're so destructive. Like they're a terrible pest. Yeah, I mean they decimated crops. Oh. They're terrible pests, but they're really they're super cool bugs. Yeah, they're big legs and yeah, they're fascinating. Yeah, farmers hate them. Farmers hate them. Yeah, yeah. just kills everything. Yeah. Yeah. So big news in the wind turbine industry this week. A lot of things going on. Um, did you saw the thing about? Uh, the inventor, what, what, what is described as the inventor of the wind turbine, modern wind turbine, wanting to 
basically have floating turbines out in the ocean and then sort of anchor them down with some big cables. Did you see that article? So Henrik Steistel, uh, he, I guess, is the sort of the father of the modern wind turbine. And he believes that California has, is, is, a, is a great place where there's a lot of deep water where they could essentially power the entire state and we could potentially power most of the world um, if we can get the technology there to, you know, anchor these in such deep water, which they're which we can't, right? So I don't mean anchor as in fasten to the bottom of the seabed, but they're going to have to float. So, I mean, you're an engineer. What do you think about the ability to float a 200-foot-tall, <laughs> 300-foot-tall, very top-heavy wind turbine that's taking 40 miles per hour in its that's, face? How does that I work? don't know how that works. It seems like the the amount of load you're taking and the abuse these things would take in floating out there would just be astronomically high. Now, obviously, we've we built uh, oil rigs off the coast of California for a number of years been out there. Gulf of Mexico has a bunch of them too. Uh, and those those facilities are huge, but they are anchored because they've got a line going into the earth to pour oil out of the ground. Um, but in a wind turbine's case, there's really not, there's not much to anchor them to. So I, I don't know if, they, I guess conceptually, the thing is, is conceptually, can you do it is it possible? Would it actually generate the amount of energy you think it's going to generate? Yeah, maybe it's possible. But is it something mm. that can be realizably done? Because the engineering on that's going to be tremendously complicated. And then all, once you get the engineering right, so say just let's just assume that we got the world's brightest engineers working on this day and night, and they figure out a way to do it. Awesome. Then you got a bunch of regulatory people uh, and trying to make sure that this thing doesn't blow away and land up on somebody's beach or or hit a hit a uh, uh, a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean you know sometimes sometimes the the engineering is easy and the all the other regulatory aspects are the hard part uh, to get something into service so you, yeah. are, you know, I seems like a lot of challenges a lot of a lot challenges. of challenges yeah, sure. yeah you're talking just thinking about some of the oil rigs off the coast of California, how long it took to get some of those put out there. And then now, now they want to decommission a bunch of them. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you even factor that in because a lot of the coast water line is either owned by the state or the feds and you have to run through, run it through the government. And if I bought a, a beautiful home with a beach view overlooking the ocean and somewhere on the coast of California, you know you're going to have 30, 40% of the people on that coastline that are going to be upset about it. Yeah. I wonder if it's yeah, going to work. We, we, were, we were chatting about, I think seeing wind turbines in the distance is cool. I think they're just like kind of graceful machines. Yeah. But just, I, I feel like, I feel like they, they blend in with the, with the, it doesn't matter where they are, especially like when it's dusky out, you know, and it's like the sun's fading. I just think they look, their silhouettes just really impressive. And well, kind of, like I said, kind of great, graceful. Yeah. But not everyone feels that way. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a good rule of thumb about people who don't have any sense of humor, right? So there's like 30% of the people on the planet have no sense of humor, which is hard to believe, right? Like mm. you don't laugh at anything. Laughing's fun. Right? Yeah, right? it's cool. Right. But uh, there's some po section of the population, you know, valid as any other, that don't think things are all that funny. And I... I know where we live at, there was a big controversy, and this is going to sound ridiculous because it really is, 
uh, about the frequency of light of, on the street light, so the light bulbs, right? Which we're moving from uh, sort of gas bulbs from to fluorescent bulbs to these now LED, right? So there's different mm -hmm. kinds of LED light bulbs you can get to put on the street lights, different daylight, soft white, right? Just, oh, you know what I'm saying? Gotcha. Right, so there's- The color the, temperature. The color temperature. The color temperature, right, which is this frequency thing. So it's a color temperature, right? Uh, and there's like this big uproar about the color temperature of the street lights and how they're gonna cause cancer and if you happen to live near them or how how it was light pollution. There's no there's no evidence of that. I, I, I'm telling- It's gotta be unfounded. I am telling you that they, they stopped the process of putting LED lights in my town because of it. Now the next town over has those same exact lights. Same exact lights, right? Uh, that they will not put in my, my town. Uh, okay. What color temperature they? What, what color temperature do they want? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The 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 the, the Well, they just they don't want street lights at all because it's light pollution, oh, right? Okay. So every, anything you don't like, just you throw the word pollution to the end of it, and then you can rally the troops against it. That doesn't make it right or wrong. It just it doesn't make it. It makes it um, non-debatable, which is <laughs> which is a real bugaboo with engineers, like. Yeah, we need to have the discussion about it because, you know, maybe it's a more efficient light. Maybe it's actually causing less pollution, which makes the sky cleaner. And you're telling me we can't do it or we can't have any light at all, right? So anytime you get any any large group of people together to discuss anything like this, you're going to have some significant portion of the population is going to vote no. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, that's, that's the society we live in. But some of it can get a little off off base at times and it just seems frustrating it's that nothing can ever change ever uh i'm not sure that's a good idea so you know if we get to the point of having if it made sense to have large wind turbines floating offshore and we could we could do it again it gets back into the i'll use the scott adams approach from the dilbert guy of systems versus goals if your goal is to have less oil and gas being used to create energy then you're going to have to figure out a way to go do that and maybe you try this floating wind turbine in some part of the country us uk off the coast of of of, of europe somewhere or mm -hmm. china japan doesn't it doesn't really matter try it see if it works if it doesn't work then fine you know we'll figure out something else but at least let it have a chance and my gut tells me that this thing doesn't even have a chance um no, no. not even a chance not in the u.s not in the u.s just because just more because of regulations and, yeah. and complaining yeah because the the property in the united states along the coastlines is expensive because they want the views right it's just like elon musk putting that putting the rocket launch facility down on texas and in Brownsville, Texas, and the, uh, the one of the complaints about that having that launch facility is how tall the buildings can be because it ruins the sight line out into the water. So you can only put things so high because of that. I I'm not saying it makes mm. sense, but just the way that it is. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you think this is a at least from the engineering, it's a solvable problem. Like, there's got to be some way to make. It doesn't matter how tall it is to float. Yeah. But I mean, then I guess this is the cost cost benefit analysis. I mean, right. that could cost a lot of money Good. to get something heavy and wide enough and and secure enough. And I don't know if they. I mean, I guess it's got to be completely free floating when it's really really deep water. 
And I yeah, that does does seem like a really big challenge. And the ocean, have you yeah. followed the, the ocean cleanup at all? The guys at the ocean cleanup that are putting the nets out in the ocean mm-hmm. in the in the quote unquote garbage patch or plastic garbage patch. Um, how much difficulty you had going from the laboratory actually to the real ocean? How the water didn't move like they thought it was going to move once they got out there. Yeah. Right. Oh, I could definitely see that. Uh, yeah, you, I'm sure it's a night. I'm sure it's a nightmare to to model that stuff and figure yeah. out what's going to actually happen. Yeah, it it was. Yeah, the ocean oceans are oceans are such a rough environment out there. Yeah, the sea. I mean, I can't. Hats off to the crab fishermen and the. I mean, all these commercial fishermen. <laughs> terrifying job. Oh, I mean, nerves of steel. Those guys. Totally. No one wants to go out that no. way, getting lost at sea, no. and it happens. Unfortunately. A lot. That's a rough way to go. Tossed off that boat, and as soon as you're overboard, you know it's over. They're very unlikely to find Once you. Once you hit the water, yeah, it's over. Some that's some crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. so it makes you think about if we put a floating wind turbine out there, what we, how much we don't know about currents in the ocean that we would find out the hard way. <laughs> this is again why you would try it on a smaller scale and see what you and see if you could get it to work, and then expound upon it. Ocean mm-hmm. cleanup didn't do it that way. Well, they kind of did it that way. They they made a larger scale. Uh, device took it out to the ocean and realized it wasn't working. And so they actually made a smaller scale device, tried it, tried a lot of variations on it on a small scale, which is probably where they should have started to begin with. And now they know the lesson, right? But, and, and then they, then they're, then they're growing it out again. Um, yeah. yeah. So the same thing here, you know, probably start small then figure it out from there. Well, Steesdell's uh, story, um, Heinrich Steesdell, he uh so he in the ninth in the late 1970s there was a uh, in a nearby teacher's college they're running an experiment to generate electricity from wind mm-hmm. and he made one a little model that fit in his hand and then he started scaling it up scaling it up scaling yep. it up and then got approached by some executives to form uh, and he licensed it to form what eventually became Vestas mm-hmm. so pretty cool pretty cool story that is Not, yeah obviously all a lot a lot of stuff just happens like yeah. that but how cool is that that the all these wind turbines came from. You know, one smart young man mm-hmm. in a you know high school age. I mean, he's eighteen, nineteen years old. It sounds like yeah. just winning a contest and changing. I mean, making a huge, I mean, huge push in the world. <laughs> right, that's a huge push change in the world. But I think it's just one of the stories of sort of science and engineering is that a lot of the bigger ideas started as small ideas. I was watching. Gosh, was yeah, for was, sure. Was, you know, with uh, all the coronavirus and time at home, that uh, I've been trying to watch something relatively educational. So I was watching the discussion about the or the movie about the invention of the jet engine over in the UK. I'm going to say the guy's name is Whittle. I don't know why I'm blanking on it at the minute, but that guy developed the jet engine pretty much on his own. Like he would just. He was he was working with essentially no government funding for the longest time, uh, uh, just finding investors to go ahead and get some prototype up and running. And he did. He get some prototype up and running. He learned from it. He could just keep modifying, getting better, and getting better, and getting better. And then you know, obviously they ran into World War II, and uh, the engine got sent over to the United States, where it was a little more secure, and they could work on it. GE ended up working on it, and 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 taking it to really in a production sense making it work in a production sense but again it's like one of the one of the world changing uh inventions in the 1900s right in the 20th century happened because a guy had a had a thought about me and he was like a 
in college when he figured this thing out that he just went off and did it on his own. And that's where a lot of these ideas start. So you know, it's it's not surprising. I think we all think that it's going to be a company like Tesla or Amazon is going to change the world. Well, actually, uh, the, and for the most part, it's usually somebody, some person or some small group of people that's got an idea and they they make it work on a small scale and then and eventually grows. Good. Yeah, that's cool. I'll have to check that out on the jet the jet engine. That's interesting. It, it I still have literally zero idea of how jet engines work. <laughs> they look cool. A lot of little spinning parts. A lot of spinning parts. Well, I went to the uh, Udvar Hazy Center yeah. here outside of DC, and they have a bunch of huge jet engines that are sliced in different ways, mm-hmm. and they they'll, they're like slowly spinning, so you can see the inner yeah. workings. I mean, fascinating in their complexity, which puts even more. Uh, it's like even more astonishing that that guy basically created that in his garage yeah. or whatever yeah. you said with minimal funding yeah. almost no funding yeah they're just they're incredible they're incredible yeah, yeah the government thought it was a horrible idea <laughs> that's like all of them right i mean it's all of them. like ride a horse what? a horse what? what are you talking about then everyone rides horses right. of course was there ever a time before they there must have been a time they didn't ride horses oh, right yeah sure there were there's a first. There's a first time for everything, but <laughs> well, in the in the wind turbine side, it's the same thing, right? You know, we've gone from boy when they got to one megawatt, like ooh, then they got to two, like ooh, two megawatts, wow, you know, what are we talking now? Twelve, yeah, fifteen, right? So that, expo- that exponential curve, yeah, yeah right, you know, right, takes right. Off. All of a sudden, we're like whammo, we got these big, got these big turbines, and they're now this, you know. Good gravy! They're just huge. They're 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 massive. They used to be large. Now they're just gone for large. They're massive. And now, like we've been getting, there's I saw some email traffic this week about people talking about 50 and 60 megawatt terminals. Like, I don't even know if that's possible. Okay, we're, we're talking like dinosaur size <laughs> stuff. Or you know, it's just it just gets to be so unbelievable. But it always it usually starts with starts with the small ideas. So, hey, yeah, yeah. Which I'd love to see one of those like double digit megawatt ones in person because when i was up at that <laughs> wind wind farm in west virginia yeah. when i got close to it it was uh you know it was really windy and then suddenly they just started appearing like right next to the road up on this these small mountain roads i was mm-hmm. on and, and and up close like you're intimidated by them they're scary almost there's just like out of nowhere you're right next to this enormous thing that's moving and there's just like almost like a sense of vertigo. You're like, oh my god, that thing's huge. huge. <laughs> and those are probably those are probably only th- three megawatt, maybe two and a half megawatt. Yeah. That's that's pretty much the standard. Yeah. That's what I assume they probably yeah. were. Probably, yeah. And then just see these. I'd love to see one of these four, 14 megawatt well, ones in person. But of course, they're all going to be offshore. Right. Um, but oh. still, I mean, it's got to just be a sight to a sight to behold. Well, it's like Don Quixote. Ever read Don Quixote? No, let me rephrase that. Don't read Don Quixote, right? <laughs> well, I read Moby Dick. I read four. Well, I listened. I listened to fourteen hours. Oh my god! Of that godforsaken book. It's hey, a hour e- audio book. Easy. He's from here. Melville uh, wrote that book just down the street, my friend. Uh, well, it's well, it's. Have you read it? Yeah. It's drivel. It's absolute <laughs> drivel. He talks about sperm whale oil for hours on end. It's just ramblings. Yeah, I don't see. That was high tech. Like I know this is twenty twenty. No, it, that book was hated. It got terrible reviews when it came out, and then slowly it got better reviews over time. And I don't. I mean, just because it's classic doesn't make it good. I don't understand. I don't. I just don't understand it because as much as we have short attention spans today, which granted, like the way people consume media is very different. Mm. 
I don't I don't see the point in telling a story that could have been told in eight hours, you know, in 200, 300 pages, telling it in 600 pages. Because so much of that was just superfluous drivel. Just drivel. Well, it's just about whales. <laughs> He's prattling on about the different types of whale oil for yeah. hours. Well, no one knew anything about it's it. Like, it was like, on, it was like you could Google whale oil back. Yeah, but is it but is it but is it a novel? Is it a story? Or are you just or is this a encyclopedia about whale oil? That's my it's point. All it's, of those. Is this is this Yeah, which that's a terrible idea. I mean, <laughs> Imagine me writing a book and then describing my refrigerator for 45 minutes and then describing my kitchen table for 45 minutes. I mean, you'd be like, this is not pushing, this is not pushing the plot along. Well, just think, oh, okay, but most people had never seen a whale and the, and the, the, the number of actual picture, I mean, no, no photographs, obviously, but the, but people drawing whales didn't even have them proportionally right. (laughs) So, because you only saw the tops of them, right? When did did you see the bottom of a whale? Unless, unless you actually had killed the whale and brought it on, uh, taking the oil off and then you wouldn't know. But uh, it's, I, you know, the thing about Melville and sort of new technology and i i always throw that into the to the group of new technology is that when new technology hits there's all the gory detail because everybody's nobody knows anything about it so they want to know all the gory detail and you're like oh yeah i could really care less about the batteries in a tesla car but there's a lot of gory detail on the mm-hmm. internet today i don't think it's great writing either but hey that's that's the era they that they lived in yeah well i, I don't know you know like i just don't want to get wrapped up in because it's a classic it's good and because other people have no. said it's good that it's objectively good no. i just don't believe that no yeah one of my favorite I, reads is dr jekyll and mr hyde mm. i think that's a that's it's a it's really short right which i don't like it just because it's short but i think it's just a tremendous thought experiment i like I, you hear about it when you're a kid as like i don't think we ever read it in school but i was always aware of it maybe they gave us the cliff notes but i certainly never read the book i read it I think four years ago in the clubhouse during the summer, mm. and uh, I just thought it was—I thought it was wonderful. I mean, just such an interesting thought experiment of him slowly becoming Hyde, and this whole time wondering if he's really this. The overarching theme is—is is he really culpable for what Hyde's doing? Right. right? <laughs> we right. all have these inner urgings that we don't let out. You know, when our our brother pisses us off, you'd really like to hit him in the head with a with a club, <laughs> right? But you don't. You don't. But he in the in the story transforms into Hyde, and Hyde w- does, does do, do those, those things. things yeah. He goes out, and, but but when he turns back, Jekyll would never do that. No, that's true. And so the question is: Is he culpable because he's choosing to let Hyde out, and Hyde does those things that Jekyll would never do? So I just thought it was really interesting. So, but it, you know, I, I don't, don't know. You, I think we just don't need you to, think it's talking about the human condition because I guess it gets back to it is it's right, is. and that's why I think those things have such longevity. You grew up in Maryland. Is and that's where Edgar Allan Poe wrote some of his most famous works, right? Right? Did mm-hmm. you have to read them in school? So that's why they're called the Ravens. That's why the right. Ravens are the Ravens. Right. So did you have to read those in school? Because you have to read Moby Dick up here. That's that's required reading because it happened a couple of months. How do kids get? No way kids get through that. Oh book. yeah. No way they actually read that that's, book. Plus you could just skim it. You could skim parts. Like oh, it, yeah. pages four hundred. Yeah. Pages four hundred through seven hundred. He's just <laughs> prattling on about porpoises. Yeah. Uh, no, we did read some Edgar Allan Poe, which but, poem, poems they're are trying to, obviously easier. Yeah, and I, I, oh, yeah, they're a little bit easier, but the, I think the whole emphasis on that in, is to 
describes sort of the human condition and also that the human condition hasn't changed all that much human behavior hasn't changed all that much over all this time and um you know just like with the jet engine and making of wind turbines the whole thing where a lot of the time uh the the person with the great ideas the one is probably trodden down the most and that's just part of the human condition how many times are you going to hear that same story right uh and mm-hmm. as a society we don't ever seem to i think it's just part of the way people are just the nature of people having brains is that that's the way you know you try to group things and we think we're better at detecting patterns than we really are we're awful at detecting patterns that's why las vegas makes so much money every year um but Mm -hmm. it's it gets back into that you know it's it's impossible to do something new sort of thing right it takes the it takes the odd character or the the savant to (laughs) shove us down to the next next level of technology yeah it's it's somewhat discouraging but also knowing that it has been done before so you know a lot of these good ideas that are happening in the wind turbine business are are encouraging but just know they're going to take your lumps and uh, it's just comes with the territory because you know you're telling me about the where are those wind turbines was it michigan where they're talking about putting the wind turbines in the it was the great lakes right where they're going to want them to turn them off yeah. uh during the summer months at nighttime so a bird wouldn't fly into it so i just made the whole yeah so the project yeah. impossible yeah, so the Icebreaker Wind Farm, which has been in like talks, development, they've been trying to get it to, you know, to go for a while now, and it's they said that it's probably the final nail in the coffin. That I guess a local uh, Cleveland like mining energy company really like hit them hard with their lawyers and uh, advocating for birds and bats mm-hmm. to the point where these uh, wind turbines, if they go, they have to turn off every night. <laughs> from March to November. Wow. So and and they're just like, you know, we're going to we're going to see, but we're pretty sure this is just not going to be economically feasible. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to lose they said they're going to essentially going to lose 40% of their revenue doing right. that. Not worth it. So, not worth it, right? You know, it's it's not going to be worth it. Yeah. And you wonder how much that was a legal tactic and how much of that is really concerned for the the birds and bats. Obviously, that is a concern mm-hmm. in the nature yeah, like is. they do need to solve that problem, yeah. but at the same time there's a lot of wind turbines operating in a lot of places that that's not a stipulation. So I don't know, but yeah, it looks like that project's not going to happen. But there's no final word yet. It, it but it, so that's that's re- reporting from Green Green Tech Media. But that's so. yeah. The but aren't those those turbines going to be on the water? Right? They were not on shore. They're going to be in the water. Wasn't that part of the thing? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're going to be in the Great but Lakes. But yeah. hasn't having the Great Lakes completely frozen over uh, at times? Especially well near yeah, near shore, I, I believe, I believe yeah, so. like they've, they've gone completely frozen over. Like man, that's a rough environment. <laughs> you know, it's different than being in the North Sea where it's cold, uh, but rarely does it freeze over. But that lake will, those lakes will freeze over hard where you can drive across them. Like I think you can drive from state to state. You can drive from Michigan to Canada, right? Yeah, I'm almost certain you can. Even lakes, even Lake Superior. Yeah, Lake Superior is enormous. Even that one freeze all the way. I over. think they've had them freeze over in the last several years. Yeah, yeah, because you see these big ice ice chunks up on shore. I mean, they're they're, fre- they're fresh. They're fresh water, right. and it's cold. Right. So the, obviously, that's that's a recipe for it to, to freeze over, right? Right. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, you know, maybe they're doing themselves a favor by not putting them there because 
again, you're getting to these really awful environmental conditions. Um, and are the turbines really ready to take all that beating? Because ice flows can be. Well, have you ever you ever watched the the guys on uh, 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 what's the what's the one where they go out crab fishing? What's the deadliest catch? Deadliest catch, right? Deadliest and, catch. And they're deathly yeah. afraid of getting the ship stuck in the ice because they'll just crush the whole of the ship. Well, can you imagine the base of this wind turbine getting frozen in ice? Man, look out! So, last segment here. Let's uh, let's cover this research paper. So. Hmm. You were looking at some research uh, lightning attachment characteristics of new generation wind turbine blades. And this is, I think it's dealing with carbon fiber spar. Is that right? Yeah. So as these blades get bigger and we start talking about doing more like floating wind turbines and the sizes are going to get larger and larger and larger, you have to have some really strong fibers in these blades. And the well, the modulus, but the the, uh, the relative strength of carbon fiber compared to like a fiberglass, it's not even close, right? So carbon fibers are very strong material in, in the epoxy system that they put them in, makes them particularly tough um, and strong. And so as you get big, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in these blades, you're going to end up putting more and more and more and more carbon fiber in to keep them stiff enough so they don't collapse on their own under their own weight. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, carbon fiber, as much carbon fiber as you have to shove into these blades into the internal structure, that carbon fiber is conductive. And it's conductive enough that lightning currents will travel down it. And people think, well, it's carbon and it's pretty resistive. Yeah, it is. But when you put a lot of carbon, like inches thick of carbon in some of these wind turbines, that it, it adds up to be something pretty conductive. So the thing you dread as a lightning engineer on any sort of carbon fiber wind turbine job is that you sh you allow lightning currents to travel in and out of that carbon because you heat it up the current flows in the carbon and you can heat up and because it's uneven and it's it's the fibers are usually unidirectional going from the hub to the tip usually there's very little fibers going kind of uh from the leading edge to the trailing edge they're, always, they're mostly going vertically uh, is that if you get any kind of crossway flow of lightning current, you get jumping of current between carbon fiber inside, and it starts to delaminate inside the mm -hmm. blade, deep inside the blade, where you really can't see it. Uh, and when you have delamination or some sort of defect buried inside the blade in the carbon fiber area, that eventually those it'll cause it can cause a blade have a structural significant structural failure so what so what this paper talks about is putting expanded metal foil over top of those areas so you take that spar uh in the center of the blade and you basically run uh, a, a, a length of, of copper foil or aluminum foil whatever they want to use over top of the over the top of the blade to provide a place for lightning currents to travel and so the paper goes on to discuss, and this is done by the North China Electric Power University, and it's a recent paper. It's in the last month or so, last couple of months, uh, where they're trying. They're talking about having different kinds of lightning protection going on, but the, the real emphasis is like we need to put some metal back into the blade to provide lightning a place to go and to stay out of the carbon fiber spar. And they, they did some high voltage and high current testing to, to demonstrate it. But that, that technique's been used for a long time um, in the United States or in, in Europe, in particular in aircraft, we've been doing it forever. But it is super important that you do, you 
totally control where currents flow on wind turbine blades because if you start degrading the internal structure if you got a 20-year lifespan and for the number of lightning strikes as these as these wind turbines get taller and taller and taller and the lightning strike frequency goes up and up and up and up and up uh, you really got to control where current is flowing because it won't take much for these blades to start failing so it's interesting to see this paper um, not surprising to see it but uh, it's it's almost sort of um, a panacea just to just throw some foil okay. on it, right? Because I, I don't think we've done a good enough job looking at the variables. And this is where we were talking with the University of Nottingham. When you start modeling, computational modeling, um, wind turbine blades, aircraft, and looking at variables there, slight variations make a big difference. And you you can't control it all that well in the in the in the manufacturing process. So you have these relatively large uh, variables, movement. Um, uh, controlling exactly where the carbon fiber is, controlling exactly where this metal foil is, controlling where they are relative to one another. And any sort of little defect that happens inside of there can really wipe out the design. Yeah. And we mm -hmm. they haven't really looked at it. So as you start, so your probability of having some sort of significant structural failure really goes up because the quantities of blades goes up, the size of the blades go up, um, the environment they're put in gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And, you know, they're going to reach a, a sort of a tipping point, quote unquote, tipping point where you're going to start having uh, failures you weren't anticipating because of the lightning protection design wasn't as solid as you theorized it was or in the one test that you ran. That's that's really the failure point. And you see it on, I'll give you the, the similar example on airplanes. Like on airplanes all the time, uh, especially older airplanes, they start having cracks in the structure of the wing that they didn't anticipate. Uh, on the airplane side, they test and test and test and test and test and they test some more because they're trying to predict where those cracks and things will occur. But on the structural side, on an airplane, on, on aluminum structure, they don't do a lot of lightning testing and then, because this isn't, doesn't really matter, but on a carbon fiber spar composite wind turbine blade, those lightning strikes play into the overall life and the structural integrity of the blade. I haven't seen anybody really take a, a blade that's been structurally tested, lightning tested, and did some more structural testing with it. Where, where have they incorporated that kind of electrical lightning-related uh, damage into the blade and determining the lifespan of that blade? really hasn't happened and nor because it's so expensive to do one and because you you need a, a you need to test sort of multiple samples to actually have any validity to what you're going about to do so um, the paper's interesting the work is good the engineering is good but i think we need to be thinking about big bigger picture here if we really want to have something in that makes a big impact and we're really stressing safety and we should be stressing safety and consistency and keeping these turbines uptime as high as we possibly can, then we need to be thinking in sort of bigger picture. And uh, I think we're still a little too shallow right now. We need to be doing more work on sort of making sure we get to 20 years. Don't you think so? Yeah. Right? So I was just, I was just thinking, yeah, I mean, these have to last 20 years yeah. and if there's defects or they're just short-sighted engineering, then that's going to be, right. it's just going to be a really big challenge. Like you said, as they get bigger and environments get, get tougher. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not like we don't know. We've had a really solid, really solid 10 years for sure. 20 years. Yeah. So, you know, that one megawatt 
ish one and a half megawatt turbine it's roughly that's roughly a 10 year old 15 year old kind of thing uh now we have all this data now we're shoving up to 12 15 14 15 megawatts or higher why are, are we not taking what we learned at that lower level and applying it to the higher level i think in a lot of other cases we are are we doing the same thing on the lightning side i don't think we are i think we're we're assuming that uh shorter smaller blades without carbon fiber are going to be just as successful when we start putting carbon fiber in and making them twice as tall there's no logic to that at all um so we'll see we'll see yeah. you know i hate to be the predictor of bad news but <laughs> i predict a little bit of bad news as we as we do this that's part of the growing pain i just you just hate to you know lose a turbine out in the middle of the ocean because of it and that's what you really hate all right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call 